Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Yeah, let's hear it for those couples there. Glad you're here. Great to see you guys. Welcome to Liquid Church. I'm Pastor Tim. We're talking about modern love and relationships today. We're going to talk candidly about love, dating, sex, and marriage. And this is a message that I've really geared towards two groups of people, married couples and single adults. Now, quick show of hands. How many are married? Raise your hand if you're here today. You're married. Okay, awesome. How many are single? You're single. Maybe you wish you were married. How many are married wish you were single? Let's be honest. Uh, don't raise your hand. It was a joke. You're in trouble now, man. You're in trouble. Come on. I think you'll enjoy the title of today's message. It's actually a new book uh, I just wrote. We're releasing it this weekend. We're going to have copies available uh, after the service today, but it's called, wait for it, You Married the Wrong Person. Now, don't say amen, guys, all right? Those of you who have been married for more than 10 years may think that, you know, well, well that explains a lot. Uh, or if you're single or hope to be married, this may be one of your major fears, you know, that you'd make a mistake and pick poorly and marry the wrong person. Anybody who's been in a relationship for any amount of time, if you're honest, thinks this at some point. In fact, you may have heard of the woman who went to the doctor with her husband. I like to start with something funny. And after the checkup, uh, the doctor called the wife into the office alone. He said, I have bad news. I'm so sorry. Your husband is under a lot of stress. He's having heart trouble, and he's going to die if you don't do the following. Every morning, I want you to get up early, fix him a great big breakfast. I want you to be pleasant to your husband at all times. For lunch, make him a nutritious meal, deliver it to work, and don't burden him with any chores. You need to let him rest. You do that stuff. And for heaven's sake, don't nag him or tell him about your problems. It'll only raise his stress levels. And most importantly, I want you to make love to your husband several times a week. And if you can do that for 10 months or a year, I think your husband will make a full recovery. Well, on the way home, the husband asked his wife, so what did the doctor say? And she looked at me and said, he said, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> You know, when it comes to relationships, right, we, there's expectations and there's reality. Personally speaking, I've been married 16 years to my lovely wife, Colleen. You can see her there in a picture with our kids and crazy dog. We met freshman year of college in writing class, um, and we actually went to school out by Chicago in the Midwest. Everybody dressed very, very preppy, like very L.L. Bean and stuff. And I remember because Colleen walked into class, and she's from New York, and so she had aqua-netted hair, <laughs> out to here. And I saw her and I said, home, you know, I knew it. And we got engaged July, 1997. We're married exactly a year later in 98. I, I look at that picture. I think, who are those thin people? You know, it's like, <laughs> and when I told her I was going to title the book, you married the wrong person. She was like, I agree. You know, uh, any couple who's honest will admit to having thought this at some point. It was five to six months into our marriage that I first began to have my doubts. Uh, like a lot of men, I had pretty high expectations going into marriage, particularly when it came to sex. Uh, Colleen and I didn't have sex before marriage. We knew we wanted to honor God's boundaries, but we did struggle. It was hard. And so I kind of came into marriage kind of, you know, rip-roaring, ready to go, you know. I assumed we're going to be, you know, swinging from the chandeliers every night, you know, or at least every other night. Uh, <laughs> married couples would be like, rookie, right? Kind of like, come on. <laughs> Reality check. 
Uh, at the time, it was, it was working, Colleen was actually working in New York City. She was working very hard to establish a corporate career. And I was a, a high school teacher, and so I would get out of class at 3.30. I'd be home by 4.30. I'd go for a you know, mountain bike ride or workout or get coffee with friends. And, and, and then I'd meet her when she came home off the train around you know, 8 o'clock. And I never made dinner. I expected, well, she's going to do that. And then time for some chandelier shaking. And she'd come home and collapse on the couch most nights. And she'd be like, can we order Chinese and go to bed early? And that was hard. That was hard for the first few months. You know, my disappointment sort of built up. I was telling a friend of mine about it. And he was like, dude, you got to tell her. And I was like, you think? He goes, oh, you got to tell her how, how, how you feel. Oprah says this. It's very important. <laughs> and um, so one Saturday morning, I said, hey, can we sit down? Because I have a secret I need to share with you. She's like, okay. And she put down her coffee. And I said, my secret is really not enough sex. And she said, oh, well, my complaint is you're a slob, and it's no secret. Everyone knows it. And I was like, what? And like, she just lit into me. She's just like, when I come home, this place looks like a frat house. There's plates in the sink. There's cereal on the floor. There's magazines. You look at your underwear in the corner. You're a total slob. And I was just shocked because it took me five to six months to first wonder, you know, did I marry the wrong person? And I asked Colleen this week, I said, how long did it take you? She's like, well, it took me five or six days, uh, you know. <laughs> And uh, she was so upset. She called her dad crying. Tim doesn't take care of me or the house. And, and that set her dad off. He was real comforting. Pack your bags. You can move back home with us. We'll get the marriage annulled. And I was like, thanks, dad. <laughs> you know? Sadly, uh, divorce runs pretty deep on my in-law's side of the family. So some have divorced two or three times, and they're not afraid to play that card uh, in a crisis. And it confirmed, you know, I, I had always suspected, maybe you have in-laws who are outlaws, Right? <laughs> And that was my introduction to what I call the foo factor, foo, F-O-O, family of origin. We all come from these different family backgrounds, patterns, ways of dealing with conflict or avoiding it, and we drag that baggage right into our relationships. I remember we went to a marriage counselor, and he said, well, Tim, you got to picture it this way. When any couple climbs into bed, it's never just the two of you. There's all this family history. You got to think of it like there are six people in bed. It's you, your wife, your mom, your dad, her father, her mother. That cured my bedroom fantasies real quick, okay? Let me just tell you very, very quickly. And it was a tough go. Uh, for the first five years, we really struggled. I'd like to tell you it just got better, but married couples, you know, there's no magic wand. We fought. We struggled. We hurt one another. And though we never verbalized it, I know there are times both of us lied awake at night wondering the same thing. Maybe I married the wrong person. And you know what? In some ways, we did. <laughs> In some ways, you always marry the wrong person. Because according to the Bible, there's just one problem with marriage. It always involves two sinners. <laughs> I believe a careful study of Scripture kind of leads to that conclusion, really is the number one source of relationship friction today that impacts every single person here. And today, I want to speak to three groups of people in this room or at your campus. First, those of you who are seeking marriage. Maybe you're single. You hope to be married someday, or you've seen your parents' own painful divorce, and you don't want to make the same mistakes. And a lot of singles I talk with are, are paralyzed because they're like, I, I, get, you know, I want to explode for you this myth of Mr. or Mrs. Right. Like there's one perfect soulmate, and i got to find because all that pressure that puts on you. If you're single or single again, this is going to liberate you as you seek a spouse. Secondly, I want to talk to those of you surviving marriage. In our church, we have a lot of young families who are in survival mode. You may have a couple of kids, and, but they're you know, juggling jobs or daycare or shuttling kids to schools and sports, and he's not being a help or she's not meeting your needs, and passion takes a back seat to the pressures of everyday life. And maybe you're starting to have doubts, like, is this as good as it gets? You're in survival mode. And lastly, there are those of you who might be trying to save your marriage. 
Maybe you're here today and you're actually on the brink of a breakup and you've decided to give it like one more try or someone invited you to this church and, and you've tried everything. You're like, I might as well go to church because God's going to have to do a miracle. You don't have a lot of hope left and that's, that's fine because I've been praying for you this week. I really believe if God can raise his son from the dead, he can resurrect a dead marriage, amen? He can breathe new life into that. And if you don't have faith for that, that's fine. Borrow mine for a little bit, all right? So lean in because I want to tell you the secret and I don't want to leave this room. Uh, it's not about changing your spouse. I already told you, you married the wrong person, but so did he or she. Sin and selfishness make every single one of us incompatible. So what that means is God's got some work to do in you and you and in me and in all of us. You know, that's what I want to talk about in Ephesians 5. That's where we're going to ground our study, Ephesians 5. This is from the Bible, God's word, and this is from the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter. So you can open your Bible if you have one or flip in your phone. We actually printed this in today's notes. If you open your program, you'll see some notes in there. And speaking of marriage, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis, and he describes it this way. He says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul writes, this is a profound, let's say the word in red together, ready church, is a profound mystery. For the first five years, that's what our marriage was. It was a mystery. Colleen and I didn't have a clue how we were going to make love last. We'd see couples like, you know, we're going to grow old together. We're like, I don't have, know how to do that. And the Greek word that Paul uses here is mysterion, and it has two meanings. The first is something hidden or hard to understand. Like, how do two people stay together for a lifetime? There were so many nights that Colleen and I would go round and round in an argument. We would circle back. We'd make progress, think we had things worked out, and all of a sudden, like, a grenade would go off. And we'd collapse into bed and being like, this is a mystery, man. I don't understand, God, why you would wire us so differently, you know, or bring us together. Marriage is a mystery. It's beyond us. But the word mystery has a second meaning, and that is divine insight a transcendent truth that God reveals to his people through the Holy Spirit. Insight means literally you see into a deeper truth. See, it's possible for you to hear this idea, I married the wrong person, and find it liberating. See, because once you admit you and your partner are incompatible from the start, you are set free to embrace the one you're committed to with all of his or her weaknesses and flaws. It's not magic. It takes hard work, but God's word gives us insight on how to do this. So let me tell you how we're going to unpack this today. If you're taking notes, I want to look at four things. The first thing I want to look at is the mystery of marriage, because all the current trend lines indicate that modern marriage is in a free fall. Why is that? We'll do a little state of the union. Obama gave a state of the union address. We're going to talk about the state of our unions. Then we'll talk about the history of marriage, because a shift has taken place in our culture that really impacts particularly how millennials see marriage. That's the next generation, 20 and 30-somethings. Then we'll talk about a phenomenon known as the me marriage. That's what the New York Times calls it. And then finally, the biblical meaning of marriage. So if you're taking notes, the mystery, the history, a thing called me marriage, then the meaning of marriage. So let's talk first about the, the mystery of marriage because there is a growing sense in our culture that traditional marriage is basically in a free fall. If I were a doctor, I would say this, is, this patient is sick and, and, and in, in danger of dying. There are really four main symptoms over the last 40 years. You'll see them in your notes. And the first is a decline in marriages. This year, for the first time in our nation's history, the majority of adults, 18 and older, will be single. That's the first time ever 
In 1960, about 75% of adults were married. Today, only 49 or 50% are. So there's, there's 25% fewer marriages, more single adults than ever. Many choosing to get married later in life or not at all. And I know some of you probably have children that have moved back in, and they're at an age where you just kind of assume they'd be married and maybe starting families of their own. At the same time, there's been a decline in marriage. There's been an increase in divorce. The divorce rate has doubled what it was in 1960. Nearly half of all marriages now end in divorce court, and that statistic is relatively consistent inside and outside the church. So if you're new to church, you know what? There's not a lot of difference there. Now, we welcome divorced folks at Liquid Church. I want to be very clear about that. We have no condemnation. We actually have special compassion for you. We hope this can be a place where you can heal and find a family that can just kind of love and support and come around you. So we're, we're all here to learn. We, many of us have witnessed our own parents' you know, painful breakup, and we're wary about making the same mistakes. My parents were married 49 years, so I, I had the benefit of a relatively stable home life. But Colleen's side of the family, ha- they have multiple divorces which makes holidays super fun, okay? (laughs) But if you just look at these current trend lines, there's this growing pessimism about marriage, especially among young adults, right? Because they look, and they say statistically, they look at their chances of having this stable, you know, dynamic, lasting marriage. They're like, it's not great statistically. And even if it does last, last, most millennials worry that it's going to become boring and routine. That's how they see it. You can either be single and lonely or married and bored. Those are the two options most young adults see. And it's no surprise then, they are cohabiting in record numbers. Today, more than half of all adults will live together before getting married. Again, last 40 years, in 1960, virtually nobody did. But our generation kind of grew up in a culture of hookups and shackups. And living together, that's just the norm. It's just not something fringe anymore. And what drives this is the assumption that most traditional marriages are kind of suffocating. So young adults opt for something in between, friends with benefits, right? Living together seems to make sense. Let's see if, you have, if we have chemistry. Let's see if we're compatible before there's a commitment. Of course, the problem is, as I already told you, no one is compatible. <laughs> if Colleen and I hadn't been married and we just moved in, you know, after five or six months, she would have been out of there, back to daddy guaranteed. But we had a commitment that was higher than us. It was to, to God, which made us lean in and have to learn from Christ how to make it work. By the way, statistically speaking, side note, living together actually is a disaster. I I, I touch on this in the book. Um, Those who live together before marriage actually have a much higher rate of relationship failure and divorce than those who commit to monogamous marriage. And then this is kind of crazy. New York Times, uh, monogamous marriage, those who've been married, just saying that one marriage, 75% more wealth at retirement than those who live together. That's not the Bible. That's just the New York Times. In other words, statistically, there are profound social and economic consequences of living together. I'll, talk, I'll touch on this later in the series, but social science confirms what sacred scripture is teaching. And the final symptom is single parenting. Um, this year, 40% of all children born in 2015 will be born into families without a father. Uh, so those kids will be raised without a sta- stable male influence in the home. So mom has two jobs. Mom will have to be nurturer and disciplinarian. So they'll never see a model for shared responsibility or how do you resolve conflict, which of course lowers the likelihood of replicating their own healthy marriage. Now, I need to also say on a personal level, if you're a single parent, you are my hero. (laughs) My wife calling, yeah, give a a hand to all the single parents in our congregation. You have an extraordinary task. Um, My wife, Colleen, was raised by a single mom, and so I have you to thank for my wife. And we want you to know that as a church. We're here to just love and encourage and support you. I, I, I hope that you can find that extended family uh, that you're looking for, and we can be, support you in that way. 
But if you just look at those trend lines, by any scientific measure, the state of our unions is not healthy. Marriage is actually flagging. And whether you're married or not, we all have these stories of relational ills or stories of hurts or, or broken hopes that we could share. Now, how did we get here? That's my question. Because this decline of marriage is a relatively modern phenomenon. Let's talk about the history of marriage for a minute. For hundreds of years in Western civilization, the goodness and desirability of marriage was just assumed by everybody. It didn't matter if you're religious or not. It was the building block of civilization and human flourishing. And most people knew it was founded on God's word, the Bible. You hold it in your hand. Because when you open the Bible in Genesis to the first book, the Bible begins with a wedding. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who God brings together for two primary purposes. The first is for protection. God creates Eve from Adam's rib. Why? So she remains close to his heart, side by side as an equal partner. The woman comes under his wing. The two become one, and they weather the storms of life together. The second reason is procreation. God's original charge to couples is be fruitful and multiply. See, sex is at the core of marriage. Sex is actually God's invention. It's his idea. And far from being like a prude about it, God encourages it for the creation of children and our enjoyment. So family's foundational for human flourishing. Those two purposes of marriage, protection and procreation, went unquestioned for hundreds and hundreds of years in Western culture. Nobody saw marriage as like a legal contract. You know, people say that like, oh, it's more than a piece of paper that you file with the government for a tax break. Nobody ever saw it like that. People saw marriage as a divine covenant between three people, the man, the woman, and their God, to whom they pledged to love and serve each other for life. Everybody understood marriage required a degree of self-denial. In other words, you would voluntarily give up some of your freedoms in order to be faithful to your spouse and kids. But in the 18th century, a shift happened. It's called the Enlightenment. Dust off your history a minute. And it shifted the emphasis to the freedom of the individual. In other words, it's no longer about God. It's no longer about the couple. It's no longer about kids or society. Marriage is all about me. Men and women should be free to choose the lifestyle that most fulfills you personally. So instead of finding meaning through self-denial, giving up one's freedoms, marriage was redefined as meeting my emotional needs and maximizing sexual fulfillment. So watch. Watch the shift. It changes the emphasis from protection and procreation to preference. I want somebody who completes me. You complete me. Remember Jerry Maguire? Oh, Tom Cruise poisoned us. You complete me, you know? Preference and, watch, pleasure. You also better be a freak in bed. That's how the, forget God's design for marriage. Forget kids. Forget character. It's all about me, my needs, my desires, my personal satisfaction. So the Enlightenment basically ripped marriage off its spiritual foundation and redefined its purpose as self-gratification, giving rise to a phenomenon called the me marriage. That's how the New York Times uh, called it. They ran a revealing article entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And the upshot is that marriage used to be about we, but now it's about me. And the article calls this process self-fulfillment where one looks to their partner to kind of enlarge their world and provide you with kind of a never-ending list of new experiences. So whether it's a weekend away or, or a new restaurant or a new circle of friends, the expectation now is your partner will make your life infinitely better than it already is. Let me read you this list from page 34. You won't be happy until you find someone who is physically attractive, intellectually stimulating, romantically creative, 
emotionally supportive, financially secure. He or she, this is interesting, should share your passions and exceed your dreams. And on top of it all, they better not be high maintenance. (laughs) Heaven forbid they have any needs of their own that interfere with their primary role to shower you with love, respect, and affection and support. So singles, therefore, you face an impossible task, finding a man or woman who doesn't exist. (laughs) Anyone who visits online dating sites, you know this. There's what we expect, and there's reality. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. A Cornell University study found that 80% of online daters lie about their height, their weight, and their age. And I know, I know, some women are like, well, you know, that's okay, I can change him. Ladies, listen. Unless he wears diapers, stop thinking you can change a man, okay? (laughs) I remember talking with a single man here at Liquid. He came to me complaining about the lack of quality women, you know, at our church. Now, I want you to understand, we have over 3,000 people at this church, all right? And he said, well, Tim, it's, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And I was like, okay, tell me what you're looking for. What's on your list? And basically, he describes, like, well, she has to be 5'10", because she can't be taller than me. I'm six, you know, and 5'10", and I, I like blonde, you know, and she, I want her to have really big, you know, eyes, uh, you know. And, and he's like, I like the outdoors, so she should be into, like, I love kayaking, and we want to go ziplining in Costa Rica. She has to be a Giants fan. And I sort of just gave him that look, you know, that look that's just like, dude, if I wasn't a pastor, I would give you the right foot of fellowship right now, you know, kind of thing. And so then I think he realized, like, how superficial he sounded, and he got all sheepish. He said, well, Tim, of course, of course, I hope she takes her faith very seriously as well, you know. I said, let me get this straight. Basically, you're, you're looking for a Victoria's Secret model who loves Jesus. Is that right? I got that? Yeah, pretty much. See, watch, watch, watch. It's caught men and women in a quandary. Never before in history has there been a lower standard for marriage with a higher expectation for who our partner will be. You see, our culture has created this gap, and it's a no-win situation. Single people are paralyzed about their pick of the perfect partner. In married couples, when we're faced with the flawed humanity of our spouse, we start looking over our shoulder and thinking, maybe, maybe I should upgrade. During the Super Bowl last year, I saw this commercial for Axe deodorant that I think perfectly captures this ridiculous quest for the idealized spouse. Apollo. Join now at axapollo.com for your chance to go to space. Why settle for a lifeguard when you could have the astronaut, ladies, right? Guys, you, you, can't even, you can't stop thinking about the woman. You're like, there's an astronaut? I didn't even see the astronaut. What? According to the National Marriage Project, take a look at this quote. It says, a pornographic media culture contributes to unrealistic expectations of what their future soulmate should look like. Influenced by sexy images of young women on MTV, the internet, and Victoria's Secret specials, men may be putting off marriage to their current girlfriend in the hopes that they will eventually find a combination soulmate slash super babe. (laughs) See, this is the reason many singles are paralyzed. Because we have this airbrushed ideal in our heads, we let many perfectly suitable potential mates pass by. Because, well, what if somebody better comes along, you know? 
And it's the reason a lot of married couples feel disillusioned. Because the moment conflict hits the relationship or their spouse reveals human shortcomings or weaknesses, they start looking elsewhere, you know? You ladies, you thought you married, you know, the man of your dreams. And then you find out one day Prince Charming has hemorrhoids or halitosis, right? Or your hot babe is prone to depression or anxiety. And, and a few years into the marriage, oh, look, the lifeguard has love handles. Oh, my goodness. But look, there's an astronaut. I don't like the deodorant commercial, but I did find one that I think is way more honest. Let me replace that image in your head with one that shows what real marriage looks like. Nobody marries the astronaut, okay? We marry the guy who watches football with the bathroom door open. Even if you're single, you're going to marry somebody with flaws, with habits, disgusting habits, and deep needs. And if that repulses you, you're not ready to be married or stay married. Because nobody marries the astronaut or the bikini model. When I married Colleen, I thought it was so important that she be athletic. You know, I love being outside and like I love sports and all that. And at first she like played along. She's like, I'm going to go buy some new sneakers, Tim. You know, she was very excited about this. We go to the beach, she won't even go in the water now, you know? After 15 years and a couple of kids, neither of us are Baywatch ready anymore. We both have wrinkles. We have expectations, and then there's reality. And that's where the conflict resides. See, there's just one problem with marriage. It always involves two sinners. And it's ironic, because a me-centered marriage sounds so empowering, but it's actually paralyzing, because we create this ideal that becomes an idol, yeah? And we worry, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to marry the wrong person. Too late, you already did. Turn to the person next to you and say, I married the wrong person. Go ahead, dial right now. Or I'm going to marry the wrong person. This is going to be liberating for you. <laughs> it's liberating. Okay, you don't need to keep pointing in his face like that. Don't. Don't <laughs> you get in trouble. I'm going to build you up. It's going to be liberating for you. Stanley Harawas, he's a brilliant theologian at Duke University. I want to give him credit for this idea. Harawas puts it this way. He says, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. And this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person at first, just give it a while, and he or she will change. The primary problem is, let this, this is profound, learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. See, the quest for a perfectly compatible partner is impossible. Why? Because as Harawas notes, when you get married, you only see the tip of the iceberg. A few years ago, I performed uh, the wedding of a couple in our church uh, that they seemed compatible in every way. The guy was, he, he reminded me of James Bond. His name was actually Jim. He, reminded, he was tall, like handsome, very confident. And they came for premarital counseling. I said, okay, so, you know, so what attracted you at first? And the bride was like, I just love that Jim's such an extrovert because I'm very shy. And he's so confident, he walks in a room and he's talkative, and I just love that about him. 
Well, they get married. Two years later, she emails me, and the subject title, you know, is in all caps, need help now, you right? And they come in for counseling. I say, what's the problem? And she goes, he won't shut up. <laughs> he never listens, and he thinks he's always right. This is called the goldmine landmine effect. See, during dating, you think you hit the goldmine. You amplify your partner's positive qualities. Oh, he's an extrovert. He's so talkative. But then once you're married, it's a landmine. He's so talkative. He never lets me say anything, you know? And that the reality, it's a change in perspective. So I said to her, I was like, like so I go, so what you're telling me is you're discovering the downside of what first attracted you. And she said, no, Pastor Tim, we're not compatible anymore. We took one of those personality tests. I, I'm still I for introvert, but Jim's a J-E-R-K, all right? He's just like, you know... <laughs> Love is blind, marriage opens your eyes, doesn't it? It also changes you. Once married, you're never the person you were originally. I hear that all the time from couples who are on the brink of divorce. I'll say, what's the problem? They'll be like, well, she's changed, pastor. She's not the same woman I married. Well, no crap, you know? Sorry, I'm a pastor. Holy crap. You know, I just, like, what, what'd you expect? What'd you expect? The carefree girl you used to whisk away for the weekend. She's, put, she's had three kids. She's put her career on the back burner. She's mostly tired and frazzled or prone to depression. She needs meds to sleep. Well, that's not who I married. Thank you, Captain Obvious, you know? <laughs> People get older, and every relationship goes through peaks and valleys, seasons in which you have to learn how to care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So listen up, men. She's not the problem. Ladies, he's not the problem. So stop doing this. I see you. It's both of you. You know what makes you incompatible? Sin. According to the Bible, every single person in this room is the wrong person. Because by nature, we're self-centered and spiritually broken at our core. And the question is, faced with that reality, will you run away or run to Christ? See, this is where the true meaning of marriage comes in. Go back to our original text in Ephesians 5. You'll see the secret that Paul's talking about. He says, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound what? mystery. So this is the first half of the verse, and the question is, what's the mystery? What's the secret to all of this? He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about who? Say it together. Christ and the church. In other words, the mystery of marriage, what's the secret? Is that God has designed marriage to do one thing, to reflect his radical, unconditional love for us. Our little marriages are supposed to reflect the big marriage in heaven. That means that husbands and wives are supposed to serve each other and love each other like Jesus Christ did with his bride, the church. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Well, how much? This much. He stretched his arms out on a cross and he died for her, baby. Is that enough? Why did Jesus do that? Because we were perfect. Pfft, hardly. The scandal of the gospel is that God's love looks nothing like our fickle human versions of love. God's love is fierce. It is unconditional, and it comes precisely when we least expect it. As Romans 5.8 describes, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Say it together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those five words, while we were still sinners, can change your life and your outlook on marriage. See, the gospel or the good news is that while you and I were damaged goods, broken by sin, in the middle of our mess, Jesus Christ comes in and says, I want to have a relationship with you. And I want it to last for all eternity. And when Jesus joined his life on the cross to ours, in a sense, Jesus married the wrong person. He deserved better than the likes of us. 
but he chose you, and he picked me, and he chose all of us before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, to enter into this eternal relationship with him. A marriage is what the Bible calls it. And in spite of our sins and our flaws and our weaknesses, Jesus says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. See, according to the Bible, this is the secret every couple needs to know. Marriage reflects the gospel, and without the gospel, marriage won't work. But when you pattern your life after Jesus Christ, he says, I can fill you with the Holy Spirit, my spirit, and it will actually give you the supernatural power to put your partner first. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so you learn something profound. Marriage isn't about self-fulfillment after all. Sorry, New York Times. From the inventor's perspective, from God's perspective, it's all about self-sacrifice. It's about laying down your life for the other. Let me put it in a way that you will remember. God created marriage to kill you. You can write that down. <laughs> Not the physical part of you, but the selfish you. Jesus actually said, if we don't die to our selfish nature, it's impossible for us to experience the kind of love that your creator made you for. That's why God created marriage, to actually kill the selfish you. <laughs> and in fact, it's impossible, guys, to make marriage work if you don't let the selfish part of you die. Some of you have been through relationship after relationship, and a lot of people say to me, Tim, I know it always how it goes. It starts out good. We have great chemistry, but at some point, I don't know why, it always goes off the rails. It just blows up in my face. I don't get it. What's my relationship problem? You know what your relationship problem is? You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have a vibrant, growing one where God is filling you up with his unconditional love, and then you can offer it to others. That's why you're struggling with your partner. If you don't have the vertical going, the horizontal is going to be a wreck. You see, at Christ, event, here's what will happen. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God, you will turn your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse into an idol. They will become your God. And you will look to them for a love they can't possibly offer you. You know what I'm saying? If you, everybody needs the deepest longings of our heart for acceptance and worth. You need to receive that from somebody. And if you don't get it from God, you'll demand it. That's what the, Bible, that's what the modern world does. It extracts God out of marriage and then pours emotional needs and sex into that void. And then we make dem demands, crazy demands of each other that we can't possibly meet. I need someone to complete me, to fill me, to always say the right thing, to comfort me when I'm sad, to hold me when I'm insecure. Can you do it? Can you do it? Can you do it? Please. As Tim Keller writes in his excellent book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, it's the illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. But that makes the lover into God, and no human being can live up to that. It's idolatry. Early in our marriage, that, I did this with Colleen. I, I, that's, my, that's my sin. I expected her to be the world's best lover, best chef, best businesswoman. Then we had kids, and she'd better be the best mom and the best homemaker, always available, upbeat, understanding. In essence, I wanted her to be Jesus to me. You see? I made her my idol. And when she couldn't be the miracle worker, I thought, well, I guess I married the wrong person. Here's the rub. Jonathan Edwards, old Puritan, he said, when the object we idolize doesn't meet our needs, eventually we will demonize it. Whatever we idolize, when it can't be Jesus, we demonize it. So if we're single and we can't find a man, we get bitter and say, ah, all men are terrible. There's no good men today. Demonize. 
Or if we're married and she struggles with anxiety, we shake our head, man, she's high maintenance, she's cray cray. Can't believe it, you know? Whatever we idealize, eventually we're idolized. And when it can't be Jesus for us, we will demonize. But see, if we look to Jesus Christ and apply the gospel to our marriage, here's the good news. You don't need a partner to be perfect or fulfill every ideal. They will not need to play God for you and meet every need. In fact, we all have needs that our spouses were never designed to meet. Did you know that? Over the last decade, because of our imperfect marriage, Colleen and I have learned to draw on God in a whole new way. 15 years in, sex is still important, and thank God, more frequent, but it's not everything to me. There's an intimacy and there's an acceptance that Christ offers me that Colleen can't give. Is that okay to say? Because it's reciprocal. 15 years in, Colleen will tell tell you, Tim's Tim's no longer a complete slob, you know? I've learned how to hide things in the hamper in Jesus' name. Praise God, you know? (laughs) Figure Christ died on the cross for me, I can pick up my underwear for her. Paul tells both wives and husbands, look what he says, submit to each other out of reverence for who? Christ. It's liberating to admit my wife has needs I can't meet. It's not a cop-out. I still try to listen and empathize the best I can, but guys, I'm just a flawed man. I'm not God. That's why I'm glad she has Jesus. She may have picked the wrong man on earth, but she chose the right one in heaven, amen? And that's not a cop-out. Listen to me. I'm not telling, the message is not lower your expectations. I'm challenging you to elevate your perspective. Your number one expectation of your partner should be that he or she loves Jesus Christ and depends on him more than you. And you know what? If your partner looks to Christ, you have an excellent shot at a fulfilling marriage, even when there are gaps in other areas. Guys, that's the God's honest truth of how you make marriage work. You apply the gospel of love and forgiveness daily, sometimes hourly. The gospel is an invitation. Come and die. So is marriage. And that's why Paul says it's a secret. Look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. I'll close with this. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now look at this. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. Let's read the description. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Whenever I perform a wedding, my favorite part is the moment before the the bride makes her grand entrance, right? Everybody stands up, the doors open, and this vision in white, you know, comes down the aisle. That's what Paul's describing here. He's describing actually a wedding moment. And at that moment, as a pastor, I like to steal a look at the groom's face because it doesn't matter, like, how macho he is, you know, like, oh, man, he sees he's just like, oh, you know, like, gets his grin, his lips start quivering. He's overwhelmed by his bride's beauty because at that moment, she's flawless. It doesn't matter if she's overweight or, or walks with a limp or struggles with insecurity. She's radiant. In that white dress, walking down that aisle, she is perfect in the groom's eyes. That, my friends, is how God sees you in Jesus Christ. That's how he sees you right now. Did you know that? All your sins, all your stuff covered over by the righteousness of Christ. Because of his sacrifice, you are remade in God's eyes. Radiant, spotless, no stains, no wrinkles. You know what it means? The only wrinkle-free relationship you'll have is waiting for you in heaven. That's what that means. And that to me is so hopeful. That's so hopeful, guys. Because here on earth, God just says, I want you to view your spouse in the same way. Not as perfect in their humanity, but as being perfected in Christ. And so couples, understand, as you learn to like step over the stains and the wrinkles and look past the surface blemishes, whether it's family baggage or personality quirks, 
or even sexual sin. You're doing gospel work. You are being like Jesus. When you step over the chronic lateness or the occasional moodiness or the physical flaws, the hairy back, you know, you're doing gospel work. You are imitating Jesus in a profound way. You are loving and forgiving and transforming a broken, flawed sinner, just as Jesus Christ is in the process of transforming you with his love. That's the secret of marriage. That book you hold in your hand, the Bible, opens with a wedding of the first Adam and his bride in Genesis. That marriage went right down in flames. But if you turn to the last book, the Bible ends with a second wedding of the second Adam and his bride. That's Jesus Christ and the church. That's you and me in Revelation. And God says that marriage is going to last for eternity, 10,000 years and forevermore. So the only wrinkle-free romance that you'll know is waiting for you in heaven. And that's so optimistic because if you come from a broken home or if you've been divorced or you've made mistakes you regret, even if your family isn't picture perfect, guess what? God says, I can break generational dysfunction and give you the supernatural power to love in a brand new way. See, the gospel makes a new model for marriage possible. And it's not your parents. It's not the cultures. It belongs to Jesus Christ alone. Amen? I want to begin, uh, really, um, say close, but by praying for you today. Because there are two groups of people here specifically I want to pray for. I want to pray first for you folks who are single. And then I want to pray for married couples. So could you please stand up, all our campuses, just stand where you are. And here's how I'd like to do it. If you're married, men, I want you to actually take your wife's hand. If she's here with you today, just grab her hand. Just grab her hand. And then with the other hand, I want you to open it up. Because <laughs> to hold on to her, you're going to need to hold on to God. And singles, I want you to open up your hands. That's a symbol in worship. When you open your hands, it's just a way, a, a symbol of saying, God, I'm open. I'm open to whatever you want for my life. Whatever partner you have for me, would you give me your perspective? Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Father, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came for us and he has never forsaken us. God, thank you that you see us radiant, without flaws and weaknesses. God, we're so aware of our own. And when we focus on our stuff, we take our eyes off you. So Father, elevate our entire church's perspective. Right now, Father God, I pray for my single brothers and sisters. We have our hands open right now, Father God. Would you supernaturally pour out the patience of the Holy Spirit, God? Elevate their perspective as they wait for a partner of your choosing, God. Give that to them, Father God. We ask that new marriages and families be born out of this church. And Father God, I pray for the married couples here right now. You know exactly what they need. I'm, I'm even aware in this moment there are, are couples holding hands. They haven't done it in weeks. Father, I pray this would just be a tender moment that the Holy Spirit would break through, break down walls, and begin a conversation, supernaturally pour into them the grace and the acceptance that Christ gives us. Father, that you would do renewals and work into divorced folks, Father, healing at the deepest places of their heart, giving them hope for the future you have for them. Father, we ask that you do all of this and all the glory. We go to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.